Delighted to be joined on CFB today by Daniel G, leading football lawyer when it comes to financial fair play and the Manchester City case. We've all got our opinions, myself included, however, it's better to go to the experts in the field and Daniel is certainly that. First of all, Daniel, how are you? All good, mate. Nice to chat. Um, as always, um, congrats to you. I saw, I think it was today or yesterday, you passed 200,000 listens and you've only been literally going since the turn of the year. So I, I'm starting to feel like um, I need to book an appointment with you, never mind the other way around, to be fair. So <laughs> fantastic. No, thank you for that. And as I say in the intro, the, the, the current situation with Manchester City and financial fair play as a model is something that it's, it's important to discuss, but I think it's also crucial that we discuss it in the right way. With the, the judgment coming in, were you surprised at all that Manchester City have not been banned from European competition and that they've received a fine? What do you think the reasoning behind that is? There's, there's lots of things um, I think that we will know in the next few days when the, the written reasons are published. So I think that's likely in the next couple of days, which is... Um, uh, which is going to be illuminating for a number of different reasons. But I think, as I mentioned on my YouTube video yesterday, on my live Q&A session, I think there's probably about two or three specific elements that came out in the CAS press release and in the UEFA press release, um, which were instructive. And they were as follows. One, that um, CAS didn't feel that there was enough either evidence to demonstrate that there had been deliberate concealment of um, the sponsorship monies. Um, and that um, in the UEFA press release, they made specific reference to the fact that a number of the elements that the UEFA club financial control body believed um, was uh, significant and substantive enough to demonstrate a breach of the regulations were potentially or were time barred. Now, we don't know which evidence, what part of the evidence relates to time bar, and which um, parts actually the evidential threshold didn't um, stack up. So they are the two particular elements which are going to be of significant interest when the judgment is published. But again, what also needs to be focused in on is that the cast did find that they didn't actually um, cooperate with UEFA, the club didn't cooperate with UEFA, which is quite significant in itself. And that's where the 10 million um, fine actually is has been imposed. Now, um, as I mentioned uh, when I did a, a quick Sky interview yesterday, um, if you'd said to most um, you know, club fans and club executives, would you have taken the fine in order to play Champions League next year? I think obviously everyone would have said um, yes. Everything else over that at the moment is speculation. And you know, one of the questions that we'll probably talk about is, does this mean an end to FFP as we, as we know it? And maybe we can talk about that in a minute. But, you know, UEFA in their press release was at pains to stress that, um, that the, the, more or less the positive nature of what the system has brought over the last 10 years, which is a huge systemic dec decrease in losses over European competition. Um, and that has to be applauded. Um, and I think more generally creating a, great, more, a greater, more rational, um, um, you know, better send, uh, a set of spending circumstances. Now, I know I, I listened to a really interesting um, discussion that Gary Neville had last night. I'm not sure if you saw it as well, Callum, before 
the um, United Southampton game. And he was saying that he wasn't the big fan of FFP generally. <laughs> he wasn't even more of a big fan of um, uh, FFP. Uh, and definitely wasn't a big fan of um, UEFA. So um, that combination meant, you know, and, and as I guess as a football club owner who has resources for him to necessarily be able to spend more on Salford. But um, I, I don't necessarily think this is the systemic end of the FFP system. It's definitely... Um, a really significant loss for UEFA from a credibility perspective, from um, a rigidity of the rules perspective, from taking on one of Europe's big clubs perspective as well. Um, I think there's going to be some changes in the system, but I don't think it necessarily means uh, uh, an end to the, 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 the current regime. You, you mentioned the, there that for UEFA this isn't ideal in terms of public perception of UEFA and FFP as a whole is there any way that UEFA could appeal this because I know it's went to CAS is there another mechanism where UEFA could take this further if they wanted to yep so um I actually it was there's a small piece in the times that I wrote um very briefly mentioning um the um, appeal mechanism so and it is possible to view it on the Court of Arbitration for Sport website where the Swiss Federal Tribunal does have jurisdiction to be able to hear um, particular appeals from the Court of Arbitration for Sport. Um, the grounds are very narrow. And when I was reading um, um, a really interesting Twitter thread yesterday on uh, Twitter by Pro Professor Jack Anderson, he was explaining that um, the actual um, success rate on appeal to the Swiss Federal Tribunal from CAS decisions is very, very low generally, and that the grounds are very, uh, are very narrow as well. So in a usual appeal mechanism, you may be able to actually appeal against the merits of the decision. Um, in, for the Swiss Federal Tribunal, you are more or less um, appealing on very narrow grounds, which include the lack of jurisdiction for the Court of Arbitration of Sport, which I don't think UEFA are gonna argue. Um, whether they had a fair hearing, which I don't think UEFA are going to argue, which then effectively leads um, public policy grounds, which can sometimes be very widely construed. But again, it would seem difficult to understand where UEFA would possibly argue on that point. So um, I think it's unlikely UEFA are going to appeal. But again, until we see the written reasons um, and understanding how that um, how, how the the reasons um, and the decision came about, then you know it's a bit of speculation at the moment. And the last question I've got for you, you talked about FFP and, and there's been articles written by various journalists in the media, obviously talking about, is this the end of FFP? You've, you've said that you don't think it will be an end per se. However, the question I've got for you is, FFP, one of the criticisms that you get from certain clubs is that it protects the so-called elite clubs because they have the, the higher revenues from commercial activity and they can obviously then spend that money. Whereas if you've got a rich benefactor, he or she may not necessarily be allowed to plow their money in to enable quicker progression. Do you think if you are one of those, let's just call them mid-table or ambitious clubs that aren't quite at the elite level yet, do you think they're now in a better position to lobby UEFA for change that could benefit them long-term? There's, there's lots of different perspectives in all of this. Um, you know, I, I have been, and, you know, I still need to give it some thought, but generally in favour of the, the, the system that UEFA has put in place, simply because 
the negative externalities, i.e. clubs going bankrupt, fans being left to bail out their clubs has never been a good look for football. And I'm totally against, um, you know, overzealous spending, which can't actually be um, uh, backed up with either bank guarantees, with bonds, all the things that Gary Neville eloquently talked about yesterday, actually. Um, I also see there being an issue with, you know, there being a race to the top, a bit of an arms race, is that if a new owner that has deep pockets comes in and they blow the others out of the market just like Chelsea did with the rest and just like Manchester City have done and just like Man United did previously, then you just have a new arms race. And philosophically, there's a real question to be asked is the truth, is that, you know, American sport, although it doesn't obviously have relegation or the pyramid system generally, um, some people argue is relatively um, competitive because there are pretty stringent regulations in place that govern the, the competitive balance and the competitiveness of the leagues. Now, what I mean then from an idealistic or a structural or from a, you know, a moral perspective is that um, there needs to be a, a clearer understanding about what the football industry considers appropriate if it is very much a laissez-faire approach to how um, fans want to have their uh, industry run and new owners can come in and spend what they want within reason or not within reason um, so long as that's backed up with um, guarantees then um, as everybody knows usually the clubs that spend well that have the biggest wage bills and can afford the biggest transfers will tend to do better than the ones that don't. So the question in effect sometimes I think is on one side, it's do we want disruptors disrupting the status quo, the elite clubs? Is that seen as a good thing? Um, or is it not necessarily seen as a good thing because actually clubs should be spending within their finite means and actually look to do things in a clever and more intelligent different way so that it's not simply those that have the most amount of money either um, sustainably done or through lots of capital injections so I think there's a real um, systemic debate in a way that's needed which is well you know obviously City have had a, a huge win but FFP is there to protect the long-term sustainability of clubs I agree that there has been some high-profile enforcement issues, no doubt about that whatsoever. But from a systemic perspective, do fans want um, a club to be taken over by a wealthy benefactor and then pump several billion pounds into that club over a particular period of time, which will probably guarantee them success? Or do we want more of a somewhat egalitarian system where you, you know, club spending is limited to a degree, to a degree, but you know, clubs compete on the merits. Who's got the best players within reason? Who can afford the best manager? Um, how can they find extra value add? How can they live within their means? Um, you know, that's that's actually a, a, a bit more of a philosophical debate about the future of our football game. So that, that's all I'd probably say there. And just before you go, Daniel, how can we follow you on Twitter and how can we access the book done deal as well? Thank you, pal. Always never want to forget the promotion side, which is brilliant. So, um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at um, Football Law. 
Uh, I'm on Instagram as Football Law as well. I'm on, you'll be pleased to know, on TikTok now, even though I don't do too much dancing or singing. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, and then you can find uh, Dundee or the book, which is um, on Amazon. Um, and you can go to my website to find all of the blogs and everything else that I've written um, at danielg.com. Uh, so I think that's probably enough self-promotion from my side. But um, thanks for having me on as always, pal. And I think we've got, as I mentioned, as we talked about before, we've got a few plans to do a couple more YouTube and Zoom um, career talks and other things. So I'm looking forward to, to doing some more stuff with you in the near future.